Well, I don't know if you've picked up on it or not, but I skipped the very most important part of our study of David. I don't know if you realize it or not, but just think about what that might be. Let me give you a hint. It follows on the heels of that climactic event when David returns the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. It precedes David's uh, slippery slope of sin. So it comes before the census that we looked at last week. It comes before Absalom and his rebellion. It even comes before Bathsheba and the sin of adultery. But what I'm talking about is a promise that God makes to David knowing, knowing that all these things are still yet to come. So clearly, God doesn't make this promise as a reward for David's good behavior. This promise does not depend on David's performance. Instead, it's at the heart of God's plan of redemption for all mankind. It's an unconditional promise that the actions of sinful man cannot change. It's what the Bible calls a covenant, a divine promise without conditions. We actually get a little bit of a, a picture of this kind of a promise in the covenant relationship of marriage, not surprisingly, also designed by God. If you listen to the vows in a wedding ceremony, you hear covenant language. It's a, it's a promise to love one another for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Unlike a contract who, which takes a promise and adds conditions to it, a covenant removes them. So the covenant promise of marriage is a promise not to love someone if, and then fill in the blank, Instead, a covenant promise to love the other no matter what. In our passage this morning, God makes a covenant promise to David. A promise of loyal love. It's what's commonly known as the Davidic covenant. And this promise that God makes to David has significant implications for you and I. It's why I think it is the centerpiece of the entire life of David. Because the promise that God makes to David impacts you and I. But to understand the implications of how that's the case, we need to understand and just be reminded once again as to why God chose David to begin with. We've said it over and over again. It's right there. Because David was a man after God's own heart. He chose him not because he lived in flawless perfection. We've seen how David struggles with sin just like you and I. But what makes David unique is his relentless pursuit his relentless desire to see God's deliverance in his life. Whether that's deliverance from enemies that surround him 
or the sin that is within him. Even though he was prone to wander, David was quick to repent. Even though he made sinful decisions, he looked to God for salvation. He trusted that God would do what he failed to accomplish on his own. You see, people who have a heart like David are the ones that the Spirit moves to know and follow Christ. David taught us that salvation is found in God alone. And we know that salvation comes from God through faith in Christ alone. Because Jesus fulfilled the promise that God made to David in a way that it impacts you and me. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this passage, this promise is of such great significance. It is tied very deeply to what we are getting prepared to celebrate during Christmas. It's tied to what I consider to be the most important holiday of the year when we celebrate your resurrection at Easter. It's tied to everything we know about the Christian faith. And so, Lord, would you help us see this clearly? Would you protect us from the enemy's attempts to distract us? Whether these are events of the week or the week to come, whether it's how tired we are or what we expect to experience, Lord, give us clarity this morning in our hearts to see the promise that you've made and how that promise impacts our lives. This is our prayer, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we're going to back up to what I purposefully skipped so that we could finish our study of David with this most important passage. So if you would follow along with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within a tent of curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. I think you can kind of picture the scene that is going on in the house of David, the a palace that has been built. He's having a cup of coffee, perhaps, visiting with his good friend Nathan. It's a lavish home, really the, the first royal palace in the history of Israel. The walls, we know, were lined with cedar. The, the stones were handcrafted by very skilled masons. It's a beautiful home. And they were enjoying it in peace. We know that because verse 1 says the, the Lord had given David rest on every side from all of his enemies. So David looks around at all the amenities of this lavish home. And he says, he says to Nathan, Nathan, this doesn't seem quite right. Here I am in this lavish home and the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. 
I've got walls that are lined with cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant is covered with curtains. Because Nathan, I think God deserves something better. I want to build him a home. Does that seem right to you, Nathan? Nathan responds as you and I would expect him to. He says, David, I think what you've felt in your heart is a good thing. It seems right. And I think you should follow through with what you've put your mind to. But now look at verse 4. But it came about in that same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who shall build a house for me to dwell in? So what seems so right in the eyes of men was wrong according to the will of God. And not because David was being punished for something, and and not because he was unworthy for the task. Plain and simple, it was not a part of God's plan. If you look over at uh, 1 Chronicles, it's a little more clear. It says, tell my servant David, it is not you who will build a house for me to live in. So that's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? But what this is, is, is telling us, I think that one of the things that we can learn from What's happening here is that even good things, even good things, may not be a part of God's plan for us. What seems so right, so clear in our eyes, may not align with God's will. And as great as our ideas might be, God's kingdom plan is only safe in His hands. We have to trust that his infinite view far exceeds our finite minds. His best is even better than what logically seems good to us. And our faith puts our trust in him more than we trust ourselves. Look at how he continues in verse 6. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle, where I have gone with all the sons of Israel. Did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built the house of cedar for for me? God explains why a permanent home is not a priority from his perspective. He reminds David of the Israel's wandering in the desert, how he led them out of Egypt. How he led them by a cloud by day and a, a fire by night. He wants David to understand that he has always been present with his people. God has never been confined to a single space, but instead, He enters in to wherever his people exist. The presence of God, if you will, is at home in the midst of his people. Look at how he continues in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I've brought with you where, and I've been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies 
from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, and that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So what God is saying here, he's telling David, David, you don't need to build a house for me because here's what's going to happen. I will build a house for you. And God's not talking about a physical residence here. We already said that David has an immaculate palace. If, the, if you look at verse 11, the Hebrew word there is household. And so what God is saying is, is he's not referring to brick and mortar. God is referring to a royal dynasty from the household of David. I want you to notice how he presents this promise to David. He begins by looking back at the evidence of his grace. Uh, he took David as a little shepherd boy and made him into Israel's king. David didn't work his way up the ladder. <laughs> he, he didn't earn his right to rule the people of God. He was chosen to be king because of God's grace. And that grace is what gave him victory over his enemies. David's armies were not stronger and better equipped. In fact, they were far inferior to any of the opponents that they ever faced. And if you'll remember, the men that had come together to kind of form his army were not prized possessions of men, okay? You don't need to turn there, but let me remind you of how these men were described in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. It says, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And here's the men who came together with him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Not exactly cream of the crop, right? But that's the point. Because despite the lack of valiant men, despite the absence of superior weaponry, David had victory over his enemies because God was on his side. God cut off his enemies before him. David gained a reputation among the people of God because of God's faithful provision. You remember after he killed Goliath, right? They created a song that people would sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. But we need to understand that David's reputation was able to flow out of God's faithful provision. And then after rehearsing all the things that God had done, his grace in the past, he moves to grace in the future. Look again at verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. 
this is a future tense promise, a promise that things that, uh, things that God will do, things that are still yet to come. God will bring peace to his people. He will protect them from the affliction of the wicked enemies. Verse 11 explains that, that God will, be make, will make this possible because he will build through David a royal dynasty, an enduring legacy from within his own household. Now keep in mind, don't forget the fact that, David, that God is making this promise to David knowing what is yet to come in the life of David. God knows about Bathsheba. He knows about Uriah. He knows about Absalom. He knows about the census. These are things that we've been looking at in the, the recent weeks. And God knew all of that when he made this promise to David. A promise that does not depend on David's performance. It's a covenant promise. It's a promise of future grace. Is the evidence of God's loyal love, even in the midst of man's sinful choices. So in the end, this really isn't just a private promise to David. David is the instrument to which God will fulfill a promise that extends well beyond him. It is a promise of God's presence among his people. It is a promise of protection and peaceful rest in a home that God will provide. It's a promise that you see all throughout the Psalms. If you listen to the heart of David, he repeats it over and over again. Psalm 23 says, Surely the goodness and the kindness of the Lord will follow me all the days of my life. And then what does he say? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The only reason that David makes that statement is because of this promise made to him by God. A promise of future grace that one day will impact you and me. Let's look at how the scripture unpacks this promise of God. Look at verse 12. Describing this promise, he says, When your days are complete... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The first thing we see is that this promise that God makes to David will not be annulled by David's death. It extends to his offspring, including his descendant, which we know to be Solomon. We know that Solomon because Solomon is the one who builds the temple just as God said that he would. In fact, I think it's fascinating to know that much of the temple that Solomon built still exists today. When we went to Israel, we literally walked up Solomon's steps the, the brick, the rock that he built is still in place, and you can set your feet on it today. I would say that's some pretty hard evidence, literally, <laughs> that God has fulfilled his promise. But God goes on to say, not only will he raise up a descendant, he says that he will establish his kingdom 
forever. This goes back to that promise of a royal dynasty. An enduring legacy through the lineage, the household of David. Look at how it continues in verse 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul when he removed from when I removed from before you. The second thing we learn is that sin will not destroy the promise that God makes to David. Death will not annul it. And sin will not destroy it. That's important. Because just like his father David, Solomon struggled with sinful decisions as well. Just like you and I struggle with the reality of sin in our own lives, Solomon was no exception. And after Solomon, it only gets worse. In fact, the people of Israel failed miserably. But the promise of God endured through it all. That's because it's a covenant promise, a promise that does not depend on the actions of sinful men. As God told Moses, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. That's a promise. But God is slow to anger, and he is quick to forgive. A broken and a humble heart, he will not despise. God made a promise of loyal love, even in the midst of man's sinful choices. See, we don't prove ourselves worthy to God. God proves himself faithful to us. Now look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Death will not annoy it, sin will not destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. God promises an everlasting kingdom. There will be established forever. As you read through the Psalms, you'll hear the echo of this promise over and over again. Let me give you an example. Psalm 1850 says, God gives deliverance to his king. This is David writing. God gives deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. It was in Psalm 23 that I said earlier, I will dwell, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you look at uh, verse 18 and following, as David responds to the, to the message of God given to him by Nathan, he, re- he clings to this promise and, and repeats it over and over again. A promise of a kingdom that will last forever. And that's the key word. David took those words to heart. And he believed in a literal fulfillment. He didn't know the details of how all that would take place, but he did believe in God's covenant promise. A promise that's not conditioned upon the choices of men, but on the loyal and faithful love of God. An unconditional covenant promise. 
one in which death will not annul it. Sin will not destroy it. Time will not exhaust it. And this is a promise that was ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The very first book of the New Testament, in the very first verse of the New Testament, and listen to what it says. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we see the fulfillment of the first part of God's promise. David was born in the lineage from the household of David. Which makes him a rightful heir to the throne. Jesus is a descendant of David. Now, do you remember the triumphal entry of Jesus just days before he would be crucified? The people were laying down palm branches and rejoicing to to him as if he might be their new king. And I want you to remember the words that they spoke to him on that day. They said, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were recalling the Davidic covenant. What they were claiming Jesus to be is the fulfillment of the ruler that God had promised through the line of David, through the household of David. They were anticipating that Jesus, because of all that he had said and all the miracles that he had performed, that he, in fact, was the one. And they were right. But they just didn't pay attention to the rest of the promise. Because part of God's promise said that it would not be destroyed by the power of sin. And the only way that's possible is if the power of sin is destroyed once and for all. Remember, God does not let the guilty go unpunished. And the wages of sin is death. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made sinful choices. And the consequences of those sinful choices is spiritual death. It's eternal separation from a life-giving relationship with God. It is not possible to have everlasting peace under the curse of sin. Which is why he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus took the punishment of sin's curse upon himself. Enduring the agony of spiritual death on our behalf in order to conquer the power of death through the resurrection. Now listen to this. Sin could not destroy the promise of God because Jesus destroyed the power of sin. Sin could not destroy the promise of God because Jesus destroyed the power of sin. He is the descendant of David who destroyed the power of sin and his kingdom will live and reign forever. Turn to Luke chapter 1. 
Luke chapter 1. You're probably thinking, why are we still talking about David and it's almost Christmas? Shouldn't we be talking about Christmas? Okay, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, all right? Listen to it, how it's tied to everything that we've been studying in the life of David. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, very familiar. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, (laughs) and his kingdom will have no end. Does it get any more clear than this? The promise of God ultimately fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, a descendant of David who overcame the power of sin and his kingdom will have no end. Death will not annul it, sin will not destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. Now, even as I say that, I know that you and I experience the very painful reality that that kingdom plan is not yet complete. It has been inaugurated, but it is not complete. And not because God has forgotten. And not because he's frustrated and trying to come up with plan B. He's not slow about his promise. It's some count slowness. The Bible says that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. And he's not slow about his promise at all. But he's patient. Why is he patient? Because he doesn't want any to perish. But all to come to repentance. Because unless you surrender to the righteous rule of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot enter into his kingdom. That's why Jesus so often said throughout his, his, his ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> now, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, I want you to rest assured. God's promise to David was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And one day, hopefully soon, that promise will be made complete. Because Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will establish his kingdom where the people of God live in the presence of God for all eternity. A day when the promise of future grace is eternally fulfilled. And the peace of God will reign in the hearts of his people forever. That's a promise. But until that day, over and over again, the scripture tells us and equips us of what it looks like to be a a kingdom-minded people. That's the only reason we're here and not with him. 
is because there's work to be done, and that work is ultimately fulfilled by getting an understanding in our hearts and our minds of what Christ accomplished and then what he's called us to, to be a kingdom-minded people. So as we finish up this morning, I want to give you three things that I think best describe what it means to be a kingdom-minded people. And I would explain it like this. Kingdom-minded people live under the rule of God, among the people of God, for the glory of God. It's easy to remember, right? Kingdom-minded people live under the rule of God, among the people of God, for the glory of God. To begin with, the rule of God has been revealed through the Word of God. So kingdom-minded people live in alignment with God's Word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You learn to trust God more than you trust yourselves. His word becomes a a lamp unto your feet. His word becomes a, a light unto your path. Knowing that what seems right in our own eyes doesn't always line up with God's perfect will. It may make perfect sense to us, just like it did to Nathan and David, to to build a house for God. But it wasn't a part of God's plan. And we have to trust that even though we may come up with some great things, he's got something better in mind. And we got to believe in his infinite view and how it far surpasses our finite minds, knowing that he's good. And that our great ideas are not safe without that eternal perspective. We have to trust in God's infinite view. And so we surrender to his rule. Now, in my opinion, I think that is utterly impossible apart from life within the body of Christ, the Christian community. Because God not only speaks through his word, he speaks through his people, right? It's how he helps to confirm or redirect things that are on our heart. God spoke to David through Nathan. And so I think we need to live accordingly. Here's the deal. You and I were created in the image of God. And the image of God is a fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means you and I were created in the image of fellowship. We were made to live and exist within community. Being a kingdom-minded person means that you are deeply committed to Christian community. What we do here is like a dress rehearsal of how we will live for all eternity. Our love for one another should be the greatest example of our devotion and commitment to know and follow Christ. That's why when Jesus was asked by the lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? He asked for one, right? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives him two. Gives him two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why did he give him two? Because of the absence of one invalidates the other. You cannot love God and not live in loving relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. The one validates the other in the same way that the absence of one invalidates 
the other. They will know you are my followers because of your love for one another. Kingdom-minded people surrender to God's will. They live within the community of the believers, and they live for God's glory. You see, David didn't work his way up the corporate ladder. He, he didn't somehow earn the right to rule over Israel. He was chosen to be king because of God's grace. And the very same thing is true for you and me. For by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves, not as a result of works that any of us could boast. It is a gift of God. You have been saved by grace through faith. You were chosen to be a child of God because of his loyal love and his grace and love for you. Salvation is found through faith in Christ alone. The Bible talks about how you're his workmanship, created in good works. And it goes on to say that those good works were actually prepared by him beforehand so that you can walk in them. So even the good works that are a part of your life were predetermined by God to bring him glory. Because the, the, I think Piper says it best when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So when we live in the fullness of all that he's made possible, then God makes, looks great in our lives because of the love we have for one another, because of the devotion we have in following him, because of the faith that we have that he has, in fact, fulfilled his promises. When you look at uh, the book of Ephesians, I think the workmanship is described in that first chapter when it talks about how we have been chosen by the Father, have we been saved by the Son, have we been sealed by the Spirit, that, that promise of God through the gift of His Spirit in the lives of His people so that His presence is always among us in our midst. And then after each one of those things, it says the same phrase, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. Let me encourage you this week to take some time to consider what it means to be a kingdom-minded people, all because of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the promise that God made to David. There's a passage that Paul says to the Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. And the reason he says that is because he fulfills everything that God promised would happen. And it has been made complete in him. And we are only complete through faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, I think it is beautiful how you weave within the tapestry of Scripture a beautiful picture of your redemptive plan and purposes for mankind. The promises that you have been faithful to in spite of our sinful decisions. Your grace that has been extended to us, not because we've earned it, not because we've somehow shown that we are worthy, but you have, in fact, demonstrated how you're faithful. So, Father, as we think about this Christmas season and all that it represents, may we come to understand with great conviction that what we celebrate at Christmas was ultimately fulfilled through the person and work of Christ. The promises that you made were yes in Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for David. Thank you for the reality that David made sinful choices. 
but yet you were faithful in the midst of them. Lord, help us to be people like David who have a relentless desire to see you perform deliverance in our lives, whether that's deliverance from difficulties, but most importantly, deliverance from our own sin. And we know that that was accomplished because Jesus is our Savior. Death will not annul it. Sin will not destroy it. Time will not exist it, exhaust it. Because you have fulfilled it through the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, and eternal life in the presence of God forever. Amen. Have a great day.